0: Trigger warning this podcast contains a deep discussion about suicide and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find extremely upsetting or distressing. So please listen with caution. (laughs) Hi listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking Podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent. Vent is a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. In the last few months, I've given a voice to more and more childhood sexual abuse, or CSA, victim survivors on this podcast, and if I can, male victim survivors. So I've already checked in with Tim Verity and Devel Heath, two male CSA survivors, and in this episode, I'm checking in with an American CSA survivor. Michael is the founder of Silence by Stigma, a platform which gives a voice to men and boys who have been sexually abused. Michael started this podcast fairly recently and has been talking to other male CSA survivors who are open about their story in his first few episodes. Michael himself was sexually abused as a child and a teenager with both times coming through a female perpetrator. The first took place when he was age 10 by a babysitter, the second was age 14 when he got into a sexually abusive relationship with a 22-23-year-old neighbour. From that point, Michael said his life was irrevocably changed forever and he spent the next 30 years trying, failing and eventually coming to address the sexual abuse head on. In this episode, we discuss the two periods of abuse and the effects they had on his mental health, the sex bias present in the conversation about sexual abuse and female perpetrators, and how his life led to alcohol addiction, toxic promiscuity, and multiple suicide attempts. Michael lives with several mental health and neurological conditions, including persistent drug-resistant depressive disorder, panic and anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, borderline personality disorder or BPD and bipolar 2 with hypomania and ADHD. We talk about all of those and how they've affected his mental health and which ones were as a direct result of the abuse. We finish by talking about the platform he's now created, what he wants to achieve with it going forward and what he's already achieved and the research he's uncovered into this very dark part of the mental health conversation very few people want to go. So this is how my conversation with Michael from silence by stigma went mike welcome to the just checking in pod mate thank you so so much for agreeing to come on we took a while to get here we had a few kind of rescheduled dates but uh, that was my fault so thank you so much for coming Good, on because i'm going to
1: blame you anyway
0: <laughs> yeah well i'll take the blame for it
1: mate <laughs> all right fair enough
0: this pod is going
1: to be a
0: pretty heavy one, I can imagine, but hopefully it will help you I hopefully it will help a lot of the listeners that will be tuning into this episode, mate. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show?
1: Yeah, man. Let's have at it.
0: I want to talk about your mental health journey to start the pod, mate. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Tell me about early life, childhood, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the Mike we meet here?
1: How much time do you have?
0: <laughs> I've got um, a lot of time, mate.
1: <laughs> all right, good. Grew up in New England, in the States. I don't know if you can tell I'm from the United States. i uh, sure your listeners were confused. Blue-collar family, blue-collar neighborhood. Dad worked a lot. Mom was stay at home. Uh, There were three of us, three boys. I'm in the middle. My mother, looking back, is very clearly mentally ill. There was a lot of emotional violence. There was physical violence. It was focused on me. Abusive parents tend to pick a favorite, as it were. And I was the favorite child. There was a lot of inappropriate comments that she made to me, things like, we're going to end up on the street because of you damn kids. You don't know how expensive it is to raise kids. You know, I could tell you instance after instance, but that would take forever. I'll give you this one. When I was eight or nine, I brought home a C in math. It was long division for some reason. I I just couldn't get it. So my mother was trying to help me learn. And again, couldn't get it. Couldn't get it. She got so frustrated, she bolted up from where we were, went and grabbed her car keys, and said, "When your father gets home, you tell him I've left this fucking family." You know, and of course, I'm begging and crying, you know, for her stay. You know, and then she'd go into her room, lock the door, come out, you know, however later, twenty minutes, thirty minutes, and try to put your hand on your kid's head, you know, like rub their hair or something. And I would flinch. And then she would tell me what a bad son I am because I wouldn't let my mother touch me. There were so many situations. She would excoriate my father because he had to work so much so he wasn't around, yet complain to him that we don't have enough money. That was kind of the situation, right? There's the duality of punishing you for something that she wants you to do. Mm. So there's no way to win. When I was, uh, what, 13, so we were Roman Catholic, right? Every Italian-American family was Roman Catholic where I grew up at that time. My father went with me to see the priest because they sort of do an interview. Like, why do you want to get confirmed? You know, that kind of thing. And I said, I didn't. And the priest asked why. And so I gave a list of reasons, you know, masturbation is a sin. Women can't be priests. Premarital sex is a sin. Birth control is a sin. Uh, and then there were all those stories poking up in the early 80s. Right. And the priest, to his credit, was such a good guy. And he said, you know, you've clearly given this a lot of thought. And I think you shouldn't get confirmed. You know, Take your time and think about it. If you change your mind, we're here. And, you know, my dad was very proud of me. Because I, you know, like any good father, he always taught me, if you make a promise, you have to keep that promise. And getting confirmed, it's supposedly, you know, this big promise where I'm going to be this huge part of the church. Goes home with me, tells my mother, again, very proud of me that I've learned what he's taught me. She lost her fucking mind and screamed that no unconfirmed Catholics are gonna live in her house, got on the phone, called one of my aunts, and was trying to negotiate them taking me in. You know, this is all in front of me. So millions of stories, beatings Mm. and all that stuff. But in the end, essentially safety didn't exist. You Mm. know, I didn't have that sort of, I'm home, I'm safe. Then molested by a babysitter female babysitter when I was 10 and she was 16 and that was some really weird stuff you know have me sit on her lap and watch pornography with her and like squeeze me into her body and kind of rub me and and that kind of stuff and she would occasionally have guys over and they would make out and fool around and she would have me watch I'd like to use the example because this happened mm-hmm. I'm sitting there 10 years or rather standing there I'm 10 years old and I'm watching these people you know fool around and I get an erection through my evil Knievel pajamas while holding my Batman toy just think about that disparity for a second it's completely insane you know and she groomed me and did the whole if you were six years older, you'd be my boyfriend and you're so special and all that kind of stuff. And then the next woman who abused me was my neighbor. I was 14 and she was 22. I met her child. He's about six. Would kind of poke around and want to hang out a little bit because he had no siblings and his mother worked. So you know, he wanted to shoot baskets or, you know, have me chase him or something. You know, it's fine. Kid stuff. And I gave him some attention so she would come by to pick him up. She was also dating a guy in the neighborhood. I think he was about 27 at the time, but he was a friend of mine, like a mentor. I really looked up to him. So she started with the grooming. The way it began was I was on the track and cross country team. Oh, you look so cute, you know, in your running shorts. I'd love to watch you run away. I dreamt about you last night. I masturbated to you last night when I was having sex with my boyfriend. I thought about you. And it just kept going. And, you know, she would brag about the fact that she gave excellent blowjobs, right? Things like that, like talking about her sexual prowess and how I'm so important. And it's not like you need to talk a straight 14-year-old boy into wanting to fool around, right? I mean, forget about it, right? It's it's the easiest thing in the world to do. But I was wrestling with the fact that she was dating that guy that I really looked up to. So then it started with the classic, right? This will be a special thing just between us. It has nothing to do with him, you know. And then one day she just brought me into her room, unbuttoned her shirt. She wasn't wearing a bra and, you know, I was nervous. And I said, I don't even know how to kiss. And so she grabbed me and kissed me. And within 10 seconds, she was going down on me. So that was a big jump, you know, for a kid. Like I didn't have the normal kid, like build up. Ooh, I kissed my girlfriend and ooh. The stages, yeah. Right. It just bullet train to crazy town. And then sex started happening and that was, you know, the first time it happened and we were finished and she got up, went to the bathroom, got a washcloth, tossed it at me and told me to get out. And at the time I'm thinking, this is great. We're in love. We're having sex. You know, also think about it. A kid who's used to being treated like shit, say by his mom. So it's not like I had a bad reaction to her tossing the cloth at me and telling me to get out. So this kept going. And then it was, she loves me, you know, and all this stuff. Then I found out there was an adult friend of hers, a female who knew about this and encouraged it and would coach me on how to please a woman and would make jokes about it. You know, that kind of thing. Like it was as if it was an age appropriate relationship and she was just making funny little remarks. I remember I said, oh, wow, she looks to the friend. I said, oh, my God, she looks incredible today. As you know, she's just so beautiful. I don't, I don't know what's going on. And she said, oh, that's pregnant glow. I was like, what? <laughs> what? So I confronted that woman, and she said, yes, I'm pregnant, but if it turns out to be yours, I will raise it as my boyfriend's, and he'll never know. Holy shit. Then she confessed to me a short time after that she was also sleeping with her ex-husband. So there's three of us. And the ex-husband at the time was an an IV drug user, right? So that wasn't ideal. Mm. I called the local hospital to ask for an HIV test, and they couldn't give it to me because of my age. And I explained to them what was going on and the nurse was crying and I was crying, but you know, it eventually ended sometime before that. My parents noticed erratic behavior, disruptive behavior. So they took me to a family counselor with them and eventually dragged out of me what was going on. So I confessed that I was having sex with this woman. And the only thing to come out of that was, I got grounded. I was punished for having sex with this woman. They never confronted her. They never told me it was wrong. They never protected me. And the therapist who was legally obligated to report a crime did not. When did you realize it was wrong? Two years ago. Yeah. Both of them. Yeah, well, no, the babysitter, unquestionable. I mean, that was something I just, you know, is very easy to figure out. But the way that society at large views sexual abuse when it's a woman and a young boy is so different. And I've read studies upon studies upon studies, media research studies showing that when it's a woman, based on how attractive she is. It will be referred to in the media as salacious, as a romp. A tryst, something a tw- like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah a tryst. Oh, yeah. Think about it. a 22-year-old man having sex with a 14-year-old girl. If the newspaper reported it as a romp, there would be villagers with pitchforks outside their offices, right? As there should mm-hmm, be. Mm-hmm. It's inappropriate to speak about that way. But we're trained differently as boys. Mm. So I didn't think of it that way Mm. until I was in therapy and it sort of made sense.
0: Just going back to your parents' reaction to it, you said Mm -hmm. off air to me that they took the mindset of, well, you're bound to have sex at some point. Even the family counselor, I believe, didn't report the crime. How do you feel about that looking back?
1: Well, first of all, what he did was without hyperbole, it was criminal, absolutely criminal. Aside from illegal It was immoral what he did, but by failing to report, yeah, that's what it felt like. Mike, eventually you're going to get your driver's license and you're going to drive. And that's at 16, but you did it at 14. So you're grounded. It was no different, no different. But I can tell you if I had been a girl and my neighbor, a man, my father would have beaten him to death with a wrench. There is No question in my mind, but that's how everybody looked at it. And even still, it's viewed, you know, as, hey, you know, that kid, quick anecdote, speaking to a sexual abuse attorney, and we were discussing this issue of female sexual offenders and boys. He said, Mike, there's a case that a friend of mine who's a judge is presiding over where a woman molested three boys in the neighborhood. And when I was hanging out with that judge, he said, look, at the end of the day, let's face it, those boys got lucky. And this was a year ago. Wow. This is a jurist.
0: I mean, that's (laughs) That's I'm quite speechless by that as a professional to hear that.
1: Yeah, it's completely insane, but that's how it's viewed. So I viewed it as a relationship until two years ago. Mm -hmm. I didn't view it as abuse. When you were being called
0: disruptive by your parents you were also underage drinking at the time i'm presuming you did that to escape from the abuse or forget that it was happening would that be an accurate
1: assumption so the drinking started i want to say after the relationship with that woman the relationship <laughs> so, the abuse see, yeah exactly yeah so easy to I... slip into it isn't it yeah oh dear god so i was 15 and then I didn't know why I was drinking. It wasn't a conscious thought. I know that it was what tough guys did. There were a lot of things that tough guys did in the neighborhood. They could fight. They were good men. They were family valued, blue collar workers with the calloused hands, and they drank. So I started doing that. And without realizing, I was looking for an escape. And in no time, I was a drunk. I mean, I was Cutting school, hanging out in bars in the middle of the day with uh, the old timers, getting wasted constantly. There's a lot of that. It got to a
0: point where you tried to take your own life for the first time when you were 16, Michael. I can't even imagine what that must have been like, especially having just processed that sexual abuse or even what you still viewed as a relationship, which it wasn't. Can you tell me about the events that led up to that mindset and how you felt without obviously going into too much explicit detail?
1: right, so I didn't know why it was happening. I just knew that my brain was on fire all the time. I felt weird. I felt, I don't know, you know, I mean, looking backward, I was empty. I was confused. I was damaged. I wasn't protected. You know, all those things. But I just knew that my my head didn't feel right. I didn't feel right in my body. And, uh, you know, there was a rifle, but... Obviously, I didn't do it. I remember I called my girlfriend at the time. I didn't tell her what I'd done, but she could tell I was having a breakdown. I think I scared her to death, honestly. But there wasn't much thought about it after that. During all these breakdowns, I was confused and behavior got worse. And I remember during another breakdown, I absolutely lost it. I mean, I couldn't stop crying. I couldn't stop shaking. And I went downstairs to see my mother. She was in the living room. And, you know, I just said, I I don't know what's going on. And I was bawling and the whole thing. And she couldn't be bothered to get off the couch to comfort me. But to her credit, she did mute the tv for a little bit small consolation (laughs) right so what i'm saying is i guess the point of this is i was never shown that any of this was a big deal you're coming unglued mentally and emotionally not a big deal this woman did these things not a big deal so my behavior started from then on becoming very dangerous Mm -hmm. and it lasted through my adult life Mm.
0: let's talk about the adult life now because who's the michael we meet at this point has he forgotten the events of his past or is he trapped by them
1: no i mean i've come to terms with them therapy helped and when i started this project i got interviewed a bunch and so you repeat this story over and over and over again and eventually you're like yeah okay i've got a handle on this right and especially when you can frame it in that it's abuse you're like oh this was abuse so now i can name it i understand i get the impact the frustrating part is the mental health damage that it did like i have a list of disorders that i've got that's obscene i take a fistful of pills every day and the damage went on too long so these disorders are there they can be managed But they're going to be there. I mean, I had kind of a manic episode yesterday that got a little weird, you Mm -hmm. know. So who you're meeting today is someone who's come to grips with it. I've had therapy. I'm medicated. I've decided to take all the anger and use it as a tool for the project.
0: We're going to talk a bit more about that, as you called it to me, off a smorgasbord of conditions you had in a very sort of dark humor way in a bit, mate. Mm -hmm. But... I just want to take you back to that adulthood part, if we can, because you got into the bar business in your adult years Mm -hmm. and you stayed there for about 27 years, but the sexual Mm -hmm. abuse was starting to spread its tentacles through you in lots of different ways. Can you just explain to the listeners how that manifested?
1: (laughs) Well, the first thing that you shouldn't do is give a guy like me unfettered access to alcohol. And I had that for like 27 years. So that was very dangerous. And that behavior started getting worse. It was very careless, very reckless, drunk driving, like constantly, which, make no mistake, makes me a complete asshole with no disregard for other people. That is, aside from a crime, that is absolutely despicable. And I am so lucky I never hurt another human being with that. But that's the kind of stuff. And then sexually compulsive behavior. Oh, my God. Which is a very common thing for abuse survivors. I had sex with any and every woman who would allow it. I mean, I'm not implying that I somehow coerced people or or forced (laughs) them or anything ridiculous like that. I just kept looking for it. And it's not hard to find in a bar. It got real bad. I mean I haven't used a condom since ever, probably. So that's a very dangerous behavior, obviously, and it's reckless and destructive and I'm sure I've hurt several women along the way, not intentionally, but by refusing to acknowledge their humanity outside of the bedroom.
0: You began to spiral into that alcohol addiction in adulthood Mike and you ended up not only losing your bar but your house as Mm -hmm. well how Mm. did you feel at this point did you
1: feel like you had lost everything oh yeah man I mean my girlfriend at the time was I found out she was seeing someone else it was the whole the whole gambit lost the business the bar didn't close I was unceremoniously removed by partners and you know obviously I had it coming. I wish these guys that I had known for over two decades had thought, oh my God, you need help. What the hell is going on with you? So I lost that business that I built, me alone, and uh, losing the house and the girlfriend. And I like to use this example. There was a very, or there is a very expensive, fancy restaurant in Providence, Rhode Island. My business partner and I would go there constantly. I I went there probably once every two weeks and spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on dinner. Within two weeks of losing everything, I was busing tables at that restaurant because that was the only position they had open. So you go from the top of the ladder in that industry, to one of the lowest or most entry level positions. And it was humiliation that I more than likely deserved, but it was very difficult with the combination of everything. I was also living in a very small room in a friend's converted garage. I blacked out the windows, and uh, that's when things started going a bit off the rails. Mm.
0: It was at this point, Mike, that you tried to take your own life again. And Mm. you said you called someone to say goodbye before you did it. It was probably a family, member. you can confirm for me if you want to disclose that. But tell me about this moment.
1: How did you feel here? I mean, I'd been drinking. I'd had two days straight or really two and a half from Friday night until Sunday night of the heaviest drinking I've ever done in my life. And, you know, make no mistake, at that time I could drink Ireland under the table. I mean, it was ridiculous. So, and I was also using a lot of Xanax. So what was happening was I was drinking scotch, taking Xanax, passing out, waking up, rinse, repeat, kept doing it. And then by Sunday night, I was so drunk, I was so high, and I was so tired and sad and lonely and ashamed that I tried to write a goodbye note, you know, like a suicide note. I couldn't type. I was so drunk, I couldn't walk, I couldn't really speak. So I look back on this and laugh. I thought, well, I need to make a maybe a video then so they can see it. But I thought, no one... You know, they shouldn't, this shouldn't be the last thing that they see. Right. So then I said, well, maybe I should record this. Who records calls? That's always open. The suicide hotline. (laughs) So what I'm saying is I very clearly didn't want to do it, but I felt like it was right there. The pills were right there. And I was so drunk. It, It was more you know the classic cry for help so i called the suicide hotline and i said look i need you to tell my family this she coerced my sister-in-law's phone number out of me it's not easy to trick a guy that drunk and we just kept talking i'm like yeah tell him this tell him that the next thing i heard this pounding on the door and it was it was a couple of cops i fell off the chair when they came in and They just dragged me into the back of an ambulance, then took me to a psych hospital, and then I was shipped off to rehab.
0: What people don't realize about alcohol addiction, Mike, as you'll be able to tell them, is that going cold turkey for alcoholics when you're trying to quit, it can be almost as dangerous for them as the alcohol itself because of the cutoff and the effects that it has on that person's physical health. Can you explain to listeners why that happens? And then also how you eventually got better.
1: Right. So alcohol is the only drug that I am aware of where if you stop immediately, you run the risk of killing yourself. You very possibly can have seizures and die, which is why they give you Librium in places like a psych ward, if you're an alcoholic and in rehab, they have to wean you off. You can always tell the alcoholics in rehab before you meet them, when they first get there because they can't walk. They walk like they're 107 years old. Your whole body goes crazy. I'm not saying quitting heroin isn't an awful experience. I have no idea, but it sounds absolutely (laughs) terrible. But alcohol can kill you. So if anyone is wrestling with an alcohol problem, you need to get medical help as soon as you can. Get assistance because you could end up in a very, very bad way. There's also a thing called reverse tolerance that happens with alcohol. So it used to be that I was the guy, it took like 10 drinks to get me really going. And towards the end, I'd have one drink and I would basically pass out waking up. I got pulled into an ambulance a couple of times because I was sitting at a dinner table, had one drink and I would sort of come to and there would be commotion. I'm like, what's going on? Like there's an ambulance here for you. We think you're going to die. So reverse tolerance gets very strange because it's even easier for the alcoholic to end up in a very, very bad place. Mm. Okay. So rehab is the greatest place you can go to, a full-time rehab. And I'm deadly serious. It was awesome. I'd love to go back, not to quit, but just to be there. I'm sober. I've been Sober for four and a half years. But there is something indescribably healthy about sitting in a room with 30 people that are as absolutely busted up as you are (laughs) and understand the language. You know, these are people we would never be friends in the outside world, right? They had different interests than I have. We lived far enough away like we just Mm. never would have met and never would have really been close you're instantly in love with everyone you meet because they're an extension of you they're a piece of you you're brought together by pain in essence yeah and in a way that nobody else but an addict gets i mean logically you can understand it but i'm talking about in your core in your bones that's a wonderful experience to wake up spend the day with these people, go to sleep, do the same thing again. So that helped. I got out of rehab. Things got exponentially worse in my life. And uh, the fact that I could stay sober through that was, was pretty wild. And then it just sort of it became habit. I mean, the first year was, was dreadful. I went to AA a lot for the same reason I liked rehab. You're in a room with people who get it. But I found, you know, after a year... I really felt solid and that's how I feel now.
0: That's good to hear, man.
1: I want to talk about
0: your search for justice when it comes to the abuse before we talk about your diagnosis, because you realized the full extent, like you said, of the effect the sexual abuse had had on you and you decided to try Mm -hmm. and get justice, but it didn't go the way you wanted to. So tell the listeners why that happened and the context around sexual criminal punishment in your state and the barriers you encountered.
1: Right. So through therapy, you know, it became pretty obvious that it was my mother and this, this older woman that really did a number on me. I mean, the one when I was younger, what she did was weird, which was just, it revs your engine too soon. And that's not something you should have happen. Right. So, I started to become very angry because I was having dreams about this woman and in the dreams, her and I would be having sex, but like, I didn't want to. And then she was pregnant and I was like, we can't tell my parents, you know, but in the dream, I'm, you know, in my forties. Right. So it's just very weird. And they were upsetting. For some reason, that was the last straw. I'd recognized the damage this woman did to me. And I said, that's it. That's it. So I looked up statute of limitations in Rhode Island and you have 35 years past the age of 18 to report third degree, fill out paperwork. Week later, the SVU detectives asked me down for an interview and they had me write everything down. You know, I brought that with me. It was just eight pages of every detail, every name, you know, everything we talked about it they looked over the paperwork and then they said yeah we could probably have this person in cuffs in a month great go home 3 4 days later i get a call from the detective and he said the ag won't pursue charges
0: so the attorney general sorry for the yeah I'm yeah
1: the attorney general yeah wouldn't press charges and I said, why? And the detective said, because you were 14 and not 13. And because you weren't in fear for your life. And the sex was consensual. Holy shit. Now, the detective doesn't believe that. He was livid and disgusted. In fact, I had him on my podcast and we're friends. This day we text. The one that got me was consensual sex.
0: That's the one that's got that me. One, yeah,
1: I... was so angry. I have a bit of an, you know, an anger problem. I'm the guy that you don't want to cut off when you're driving. I do some, you know, get out of the car, pound on the windows, the whole thing. So that kind of anger times a hundred, like I didn't know how to process how angry I was. So I started doing more research and I was calling sexual abuse attorneys to try civil. And essentially they all said, we're sorry, You do have a great case, but this person's net worth doesn't justify our time, which look, things cost money, right? I get it. And I wish there was more, any pro bono attorney stuff is almost impossible to find. They're full, right? I think it's like every year, every couple of years, attorneys have to do a little pro bono work. So there are organizations that can hook you up with them, but there's like a waiting list a hundred years long. So The message I got from that was I got raped a year too late and by a woman who wasn't wealthy. And I didn't know what to do with those feelings. She was living in another state. I knew where. I was having these thoughts like I tried to rent a billboard in her neighborhood to call her out, but the billboard company wouldn't do it. I spoke to an attorney about putting flyers up in in her neighborhood and stuff, and he said that's a pretty pretty sticky area and then i started thinking well if i do that and she tries to sue me for defamation that's the ball game get her on the stand and she has to prove that i'm lying so i was going back and forth on it and all things considered it seemed not a great idea you
0: were brave enough to want to share your story
1: but you wanted to get
0: journalists involved and try and highlight it and you sent i was just letters. going into that oh yeah. you're just going
1: into that oh, right. tell me, tell me about the, like, tell the I,
0: listeners about the 378 journalists that'll you asked teach you
1: to interrupt me sir that's <laughs> <laughs> no, fine so in the research i was doing which is ungodly i've read a zillion and a half studies it became very clear that There were a lot of differences in how female sexual offenders were treated by the law, society at large, law enforcement, not just in the criminal justice courtroom. And I said, okay, let's see if this stuff is true. So I wrote out a pretty engaging letter, right? I mean, not the smartest guy, not the most articulate guy, but I think I do okay, right? I wrote a thing where I thought I could garner their attention and I looked up. Every journalist in Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and West Virginia, where she lives. And I sent out 374 letters to all those journalists. Not just – I didn't send it to the news station. I sent it to, you know, Bill Johnson at whatever. Mm. You know, like, everyone. Not one reply. Not one. What do you think that says? Either I'm a terrible writer (laughs) or – There's no interest in it. A friend of mine has a uh, reporter as a buddy. And the reporter's advice was, you have to tie it into something else. Like what, though? Oh, and this is an example of consent law, you know, or something that was hot. Like, oh, there's a bill up for consent law, and here's what happened to me. She said, because nobody cares what happened to you. It's not interesting. She wasn't being mean. She was saying, in terms of that industry... They don't care because it wasn't fantastical. It wasn't a gym coach sexually abusing 10 boys. It wasn't a teacher pregnant and raising a child with her 16-year-old student. So that taught me guys are underserved in this department. No wonder they aren't speaking out with the same frequency. No wonder there's so much hidden shame behind this, especially when it's a woman. And you're straight, right? Because you shouldn't complain about it, is the prevailing thought. And that's when I started really digging into that research. And I thought, okay, well, I need to do something with this. So let's start putting it online. I would take essential statistics or quotes from a study. And I would always post a link to the study because there's a lot of, what do you call it, in sexual abuse Twitter, right? And that sphere, there's a lot of things like... Just statements, things like, we need to come together and, like, yeah, cool. But what else? What does that right? mean? It's, yeah. Yeah. It's like a band getting on stage in Cleveland and saying, Does Cleveland like to rock? <laughs> like, yeah, guy, people are going to applaud. Like, fantastic. So, these sort of obvious platitudinal statements, and people also make remarks quoting statistics they'll say research shows a study says now show the study every time or otherwise you're like some jerk off on Facebook saying my friend a doctor said that you should take horse dewormer to cure COVID and first of all dude your friend is not a doctor like this is a made-up thing and I didn't want to be one of those people I wanted credible able to be researched information where someone could go back and see it for themselves So I just started posting it left and right. And that's when I got approached to do some interviews. And the thing that bugged me was of all those interviews, I think you're the first guy actually who's interviewed me. Of all those interviews, the women said, yeah, you're the first male guest. I've had to talk about sexual abuse. And I thought, oh my God, this is a really big problem. So then I started the podcast and I'm working on, you know, some other things. Mm.
0: We're going to talk about all of that in a little bit, mate, but just going to your diagnosis now, before you reflect on your mental health journey, <laughs> I'm going to list the ones you have just for the listeners. I did it in the intro, but I'll list them. So you live with, and you can correct me if I'm wrong after I've said these persistent drug resistant depressive disorder, panic and anxiety disorder, PTSD, BPD or borderline, Bipolar 2 with hypomania and ADHD. So Mm -hmm. which one of those were exacerbated or even caused by the sexual abuse? Which ones were perhaps, I don't know, innate or perhaps developed by other factors?
1: And do you feel in control of all of them now? Okay, depression can be genetic, right? And that's fine. The panic disorder, definitely from abuse. And the reason I know this is because countless studies and very smart people who do this for a living tell me that this is true. Panic disorder, complex PTSD, borderline, bipolar 2, and the ADHD, which is very weird, I didn't know this, all of them are instigated by events. Just like with sexual abuse, it's a one in a zillion that there's an organic abuser. Like somebody just doesn't wake up and go, hey, I'm going to play with kids. No, they were abused or they saw horrible things or something. These aren't organic events. And these that I just listed are not organic disorders. They were a gift from my mother and that woman. In control, I mean, no. But this is not to freak people out. Like, hey, if you've been abused and you have mental illness pack it in, bro. Jump off a cliff, call it a day. Absolutely not. Medication keeps things like for me, my depression is so ingrained and has gone on for over four decades. So not thinking about killing myself is a win, right? So I'm pretty much at the place where it's not something I think about. I'm not making plans for, but there are moments where I just wish that I was gone, but the actual suicidal action isn't a thing. And that's, that's a good thing. Uh, like I said, I had a manic event yesterday, mm-hmm. so I'm not in, in total control.
0: Let's reflect on this journey now, Mike. The first question I want to ask you is, in order to move on or in order to heal yourself, what is your relationship like with the concept of forgiveness? Have you forgiven yourself?
1: Oh, myself. I don't think I had anything. Well, this is interesting. I don't have anything to forgive myself in terms of abuse. Good. I wrestle with forgiving myself. There's a couple things that I did when I was using, when I was drinking, I can't forgive myself for it. And I'm okay with that because these two things specifically, like, yes, there were times that I hurt people's feelings and, and, you know, made them stressed at work or, you know, total asshole stuff. Right. But there are two events that I am not going to talk about (laughs) that were bad enough that I can't forgive myself for it. And I am perfectly okay with that. That's not lip service. I don't think they're forgivable offenses and I don't carry them around, you know, like, oh my God, every day I understand them. I can frame them in a healthy way, but forgiveness, nope, not for that. Okay.
0: And as a final question, if you could go back and talk to the 10-year-old Michael who was trying to process being molested by his babysitter or the 14-year-old Michael who was being abused by his neighbor or the adult Michael who was at one point homeless and penniless, what would you say Hmm. to
1: him knowing what you do now? I'd go to the 10-year-old. And I'd say, none of this stuff with your mother is your fault. She's absolutely insane. You can't do anything about it. Keep your head down, get through it, move on. And as far as the babysitter goes, keep your distance and don't hang out with adults that want to hang out with you. Not when there's that big of a disparity, right? Your uncle, totally fine. Your aunt, you know, you got an older cousin, great. But any adult rather that tells you that you're mature for your age and isn't blood related, don't hang out with them, period. Just don't do it. For
0: our next topic, mate, out of this horrendous trauma you've gone through, you have decided to turn it into something so positive through your platform, Silence by Stigma. So tell me how the idea started and why you wanted to do it.
1: Right, so after researching all this stuff and after the letters, that didn't get answered and after the attorney general didn't do it and the attorneys wouldn't help. And then sexual consent law. Oh my God. It's a mess. I obviously focused on Rhode Island in the beginning, but this stuff will blow your hair back. It's real bad.
0: Do it. Tell the listeners.
1: Okay. Rhode Island is the only state in the United States of America that will allow unrestricted consensual air quotes, incest. You just have to be 16. Now, here's why that's ridiculous. Aside from the fact that it's incest, aside from the fact that face value, the whole thing is insane. That's not consensual because that person has been grooming you since you popped out of the womb. It's not like suddenly your uncle was like, you know what? I think I'd like to have sex with Jim. No, man, you've been winding this up and working on him. So you've painted this kid into a corner from day one. So there's absolutely no consent. In New Jersey, it's the same thing, but you have to be 18 to have unconstricted incest, essentially. Georgia, North Dakota, and Ohio still have it. What's really weird is that in 1989, Rhode Island repealed their incest law where it was illegal. In 1989, they made it legal, which is absolutely disgusting. In Rhode Island, a 14-year-old student can consent to sexual touch by a school employee. At 16, they can consent to penetration by a school employee. It's perfectly legal. Every time a bill comes up to make that illegal, it gets shot down. And there's a couple of reasons for that. The teachers' union is fighting it because, of course, they are. Their argument, teaming up with the ACLU. (laughs) Holy shit. The American Civil Liberties Union. They've lost uh,
0: their absolute minds.
1: Well, they've done some good things. Yeah, in the past, not now. (laughs) Here's where this is messed up because the ACLU and the teachers' union are taking this tact, and this is where it's disgusting. They're saying, if you're not going to make this rule the same for everyone, then why would you just single us out? Why are we being persecuted? They're right? not. No. Offenders are. Yeah. It's about money. They don't want it. The union doesn't want to pay out settlements. Uh, and no lawmaker is going to get elected without the teachers union support. Okay. So it always gets shot down. And that's not crazy conspiracy. That is 100% a fact because they keep shooting the thing down. Their argument is so specious. It's like getting a traffic ticket, going 85 miles an hour on a highway. And you say, officer, I am not going to accept this ticket because you haven't given tickets to the hundreds of cars that have all gone by in the time that we've been talking. So I'm being singled out. No, fuck you. You were going 85. Get a ticket. Teachers rightfully extol their virtue of saying that they are In a sacred profession, there is a sacred public trust. Why wouldn't you be the first ones to stand up and say, the only place that children are legally obligated to be is school. And our job is to protect and nurture these children. So we're going to stand up and say, let this law pass. They're not doing it. And at that point, I realized we got to do something here. So that's when I started posting. I started reading more started looking into this and moving forward i'm working on some things that mm. i won't really get into but there's there's stuff coming i'm excited man i'm an angry italian american man
0: <laughs> hell hath no fury yeah, a, eh?
1: <laughs> right i'm a pitbull i am an absolute pit bull, and i'm so angry about this stuff that i'm gonna fuck some shit up excellent
0: there's gonna be a lot of my listeners mate who will have no idea that Perhaps even females can be sexual offenders, especially childhood ones, because of many reasons, I presume. But give them the evidence, give them the studies. What did you uncover and how do perhaps rates differ from males to females and anything in between?
1: This is where it gets weird, because every study that I've read laments underreporting of female sexual offenders. It's an epidemic. It really is underreported. The accepted sort of thing is 80% male it's 20% female. However, for the longest time, we accepted that it was one in six men who were sexually abused. That is absolutely not true. One in six till they turn 18, one in four past 18. Nobody recognized that. This 20%, every specialist I've spoken to, and I'm working with researchers too, they're like, no, that number is bullshit. Absolutely ridiculous. 40% of men who report being sexually abused report a female sexual offender. These people, there's a typology called the mother molester. Okay. And here's a fun one if a child is sexually abused by a biological parent, it is three times more likely to be the mother than the father. Wow. If a stepchild is sexually abused, by one of their parents, it is four times more likely to be the mother. And if an adopted or foster child is molested by one of the parents who are their custodians, 4.5 times more likely to be the mom. That's insane. Mm -hmm. Teenage girls, juvenile sexual offenders, teenage girls start younger than boys. They co-offend with either their peers or an adult, there are these female called high-risk chronic offenders. Their average age is 31. Their average victim's age is five. And they target females 56% of the time, which is kind of interesting. The young adult child molester is 28 years old on average. The abuser is four years old. And they target females 52% of the time, four years old. And we're talking about female sexual offender typologies. This is not men. Men do a lot of terrible things. I'm not trying to claim that they don't. But these numbers are absolutely insane. So, I mean, I could go on and on, but they are 100% capable of it. And this is a really weird thing I'm going to say. So follow me. To claim that a woman isn't capable of that. It's kind of weird, right? You could argue it's sexist because you're not
0: viewing them as a human being. Yeah.
1: Right. I was trying to dance around that without <laughs> saying it because I said little, you could. I said you, know, you could. Yeah, yeah. But essentially, women can commit murder. Women can be racist. Women can be sexist. Women can be violent parents. What makes us think that women don't sexually abuse? It's that old modality. Dr. Lara Stemple, who is a professor of law at the University of California at Berkeley, this woman's a big deal, a very big deal. And she mostly studies violent crimes and incarceration and fair treatment of prisoners. She was doing numbers, doing some research, reading some of the big studies, like one from the Bureau of Justice Statistics and one from the Department of Justice and blah, blah, blah. She found that the number of male victims and the number of female perpetrators was so high that she called the Bureau of justice statistics to ask if they'd made an error in their data reporting. And this is a woman who'd been doing it for a living for decades and she couldn't believe it. It's bad, bad. There's also a lot of proof seen case after case after case where Female sexual offenders get below the mandatory minimum, are not required to register as a sex offender. One woman was able to suspend her probation because she said she was just too busy raising her two boys. And that happened. She was successful in that. that Deborah Lefebvre, nuts. famous teacher case out here, Florida teacher, of course, Florida. When she got sentenced, her attorney, argued in court that it would be unfair to put her in jail because she's so attractive that it would be like feeding meat to the lions. That's an attorney saying that that's how ingrained this stuff is. It's out of control and women are woefully unreported and we're going to fix that. What's your ultimate goal? (sighs) To retire in a cottage in the Irish countryside, and drink again. That would be the ultimate. Short of that, the big goal, the one that's crazy things impossible, changing sexual consent law, starting in Rhode Island and making a national push. That would be the goal.
0: You called your platform, the podcast, Silenced by Stigma.
1: Do you still Mm. feel silenced? Oh, God, me? No. I mean, listen, (laughs) I could talk... (laughs) Tuck the ears off a brass statue, man. No. But so many men have this, look, go to rehab. You won't have shame anymore. You won't have a filter anymore. That's as low as you can get with all the events that led up to it and all the events that happened after. It removed shame for something that completely, sexual abuse that happened to me, absolutely not my fault. Talk about it all day, anywhere. But a lot of guys, they're holding it in. The average time that a male discloses their abuses in their 50s it takes them 20 to 25 years at minimum yeah i was on the minimum. average i was 18
0: years to disclose i think
1: some studies say 50 years somewhere in there it doesn't matter what it is it's decades of waiting so that men are carrying this and they're stigmatized by like i said this whole perception that we have the whole thing there are no female rape jokes made in comedy shows, comedy movies, things like that. But male rape jokes are made. And I'm not complaining, like, oh, God, a joke broke me in half. I'm arguing that's the double standard we have. People say make better boys. Okay, let's tell them at a young age that their bodies have value, that their emotions have value, and that everyone else has value. You want better boys so they don't commit these atrocities? teach him that we teach girls it's okay to say no if someone wants to give you a hug what the hell are we doing with boys you can't complain about it and yet raise them in a way that takes them off the leash that tells them that they don't have the same value as their sister when we do that we get what we deserve
0: do you think in what you've just said there then that we need to stop telling men or young boys, I should say, that they could grow up to be potential predators.
1: I think it's how you frame it, honestly. I think saying something that blunt, and I get it, it's all over Twitter, like, teach men not to rape. Obviously, what the fuck? But you don't tell a six-year-old, don't rape anybody. You don't tell it to a 12-year-old. What you do is from the time that they're able to speak and understand, in your actions, your treatment of them, value them the same way. You don't believe in corporal punishment for your daughter? Don't do it to your son. That's something to teach them, that they're valued. Teach them how to treat one another because fair is fair. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a level playing field of saying, this is what we want out of human beings. So you don't tell him he could be a rapist. You tell him that while he has value and his body has value and other people's Bodies have value. That sometimes people hurt each other emotionally, physically, and they don't mean to. And sometimes they mean to. And that's not stuff that we like. And back it up with lessons of how you live as a parent. Telling a kid he's going to be a rapist or he could be is such a Twitter vacuum bullshit thing to do to a child. And any adult who thinks that isn't damaging to a child is so fucking stupid that they shouldn't have a driver's license. They shouldn't be allowed to raise kids or have a dog.
0: I imagine, as I have had this experience, mate, that when you've been doing the podcast, when you've been doing the platform, you've had a lot of men who aren't open about being sexually abused. So how has that been, hearing Mm -hmm. those voices and knowing that you're supporting them?
1: I haven't had someone who doesn't want to be open because they don't come to me and say, I want to be on your sexual abuse podcast, but I don't want to talk about it. I did have one event, though, that I find interesting. An old friend of mine. I mean, I'm talking from my early 20s, back when we both lived in New York. He texted me out of nowhere. We started talking, and we were great friends then, and we're great friends now. And I told him about this project, and he said, you know, my female cousin did some stuff to me when I was a kid. You know, it wasn't that bad. He's like, but it got my engine revving, and you know, it sort of laid the foundation for some compulsive sexual behavior. I'm like, hey, well, if you ever want to come on. He's like, yeah. Through the course of that interview, he came to understand that he was sexually abused. And I'm saying literally during the interview, he just went, oh, it just went ding. And he said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I this, And he finally wrapped his head around it. And that's what talking could do. What was that like for you? I mean, it was great. You know, he's my friend. Even if he wasn't my friend, of course, that's great. I got to help him frame what happened to him in a proper way. And Well, I got to be there for it. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything. I just spoke with him. You
0: did a good job, mate. Thank you. As a final question, you've Mm. not been doing this project for a massive amount of time, but still a significant amount of time to enact some change which Mm -hmm. you've just spoken about so what has it taught you about yourself
1: i used to be a paid entertainer right and i was paid to be funny years hundreds of people making them laugh and i used to think that was my only real value or i was good in bed or i could drink a lot this has taught me that i have something of value beyond those things that I'm smart enough and caring enough and articulate enough and funny enough to get these points across. So I'm not just one dimensional, funny, drunk, bang machine, you know.
0: <laughs> We've come to our final topic of conversation on the podcast, Mike, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general chat about mental health. So, firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate?
1: I'm at a five, six. Sometimes on a good day a 7, but five six.
0: Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that for a podcast record, Five six. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health?
1: 47. Was it a light bulb moment? No, it was... I was having so many attacks and confusing things and such profound suicidality. I went into therapy and it was just over time. You know, between a therapist, a psychologist and a neuropsychologist all saying the same thing to you again and again, it sinks in. You're like, oh, that's what this is. So 47.
0: Can you tell me about the first conversation you have with someone about your mental health? So it doesn't have to be professional. But who was it? Did a part of you change? Did it feel like a big moment or big burden have been lifted off your shoulders? Or did it feel like something quite easy and normal to
1: do? There's a woman I work with, and we've become dear friends, truly. And we were exchanging some horror stories, you know, at one point something had come up. And then we started talking about the conditions because she had seen me freak out, you know, a few times. And we talked about it and, in detail. And it was cool because she essentially said, yeah, well, it makes sense. And now, you know, she jokes about it all the time, you know, which is great. That's what you do to take the air out of the balloon. She busts my balls. (laughs) And that's fun.
0: I always say, if you can laugh about your mental health, you own it. That's my go-to.
1: Yeah. If you don't laugh, you're going to sit in the middle of the room and rub gravel through your hair for the rest of your life. You have to joke about it. What triggers
0: do you have that affect your mental health? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, a particular TV show. Who knows? Or have you not figured all of them out yet?
1: The sound in a commercial of whiskey hitting ice in a glass. It doesn't make me want to drink. It makes me mad. Like, there's a million alcohol. Why would you make it this erotic? It's like they're making it sexual almost, (laughs) you know, and that kind of pisses me off. Generally speaking, noise. I don't like noise. so there's a lot of cars going by, the sound of my dog eating dry food. It's like I want to leave the building, you know? <laughs> but in terms of things that legitimately set me off, somebody does something reckless in traffic that endangers me or other people and is clearly unrepentant for it. I've had situations
0: with yeah. that. We'll leave so... it at that with situations. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> Conversely then, mate, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked? Maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't?
1: I have one that works, but it's a terrible idea. It's uh, eating garbage, you know, like sugar, sat fat, salt, right? You get a dopamine hit. Oh, shit, I just ate some ice cream. And you're like, oh, there you go. And it feels good. It's a terrible idea, but that works sort of in the short term working on this. Is very helpful, not just because of the topic, but when you're so distracted with something, it really helps because it is very easy to sit and just think about yourself if you're not occupied with other things. And the one thing that really didn't work, I was prescribed by my medical doctor, not just one of those fake doctors that you call to get a license. I was prescribed marijuana. I tried it for like three months and I'm like, this does nothing but make me hungry. It did. It was absolutely. You know, I used to burn them down all the time when I was young, you know, but not anymore. I don't like it for some reason. Mm. What is the best
0: book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be.
1: I mean, look, how many people say the body keeps the score? I'm
0: curious. How many <laughs> No one said that, that yet. A lot of people have said The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. That's one that comes up a few times. Uh,
1: yeah, that book. No, and I'm not going to say. The uh, Body Keeps the Score, because I walked away from that book going, well, shit, what am I complaining about these people? (laughs) Had the most horrific things happen to them that I've ever read in my life. I need to buck up. Okay. In terms of a positive distraction, a warm feeling, I used to read a lot. And the author Tom Robbins wrote a book called Jitterbug Perfume. I was so engrossed in that book. That when it ended, I mourned it. Like I mourned the loss of those characters. Not because they died, but because I couldn't hear from them anymore. That was the end of the book. There's something about being so transfixed. And Tom Robbins is an incredible writer. Incredible. And that helps. Things like that. That, That's what I would say. You know, read something absolutely insane like Chuck Palahniuk, the guy who wrote Fight Club. Something absolutely out there, or, or Tom Robbins, and you're just hearing something so different, and they're so bizarre that it, it makes you think in a different way. And that's what people need. That's what Twitter needs. That's for Read sure. a different author that challenges mm. you think, not in an aggressive way, but you're like, oh, I never looked at it this way. Or, mm. What a wonderful way to describe something. It gets the wheels turning. That's what I think. It's a terrible answer to your question, but that's no, it's a I
0: great think. answer, mate. I'm going to look up Tom Robbins after this straight away. 100%. Yeah, good book. And as a final question, this is a broad one, so you can answer it any way you want. What more do you think we have to do? I thought that was the last one. No, one more left, one more (laughs) left, one more left. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it?
1: (sighs) Got a time machine to bring us ahead 100 years? I mean, really? What we need to do... I hate this when they say on right? Social. Uh, We need to normalize. What a ridiculous thing to say, like the way they're saying it. But I will say we need to encourage them. We need to support them. And you know what we need to do is help families, friends, and loved ones of victims understand. Yes. And that's going to be a big part Mm. of a thing that I'm doing because then they can get it. And then- they'll open those people up sort of naturally. And then it impacts everyone around them. We really need a ripple effect, helping people understand why a victim is acting in a certain way, making more discussions about it. I try to do it with facts, you know, things, but the big thing would be to stop making men a punchline when it comes to sexual abuse. And I mean that in in every sense. If You want to make better men? Maybe let's look at men as human beings.
0: And on that note, Mike, my good friend from Silence by Stigma, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Yeah, man. Good time. Good time. Thanks. Well, I think that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Michael for being my special guest for this episode, for his incredible honesty in discussing his experience as a CSA victim survivor, especially as one who has a story that might not always fit with some people's idea of how sexual abuse is perpetrated. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Silence by Stigma on social media in the show notes and listen to the podcast if you want to. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. If you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you want to, please give us a review and five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help us out with the algorithms and show more people the podcast. If you like what we're doing here at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk or you don't wanna do that, you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay.